Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, I'll welcome you while we uh, sort out some presentation issues because I actually, that was the wrong presentation on my stick. So I hope you'll bear with me for one second. Yep, I think that should be it. Hopefully. Well, we'll find out. In any case, um, welcome. Uh, it's great that you're all here on a Saturday morning. I know that you're all young people and you have a lot of energy and I'm sure you also have other things to do on a Saturday morning. So it's great to see you all around here. Um, yeah, my name is Saskia, um, and I'm one of the co-founders and also CEO of Una Social Business. Um, and I will be talking to you about um, social business, surprise, surprise. Um, but in most, um, most importantly, I'll give you a lot of examples of social businesses. And then, really, I'll just use my little presentation as a quick inspiration, and then I'd love to engage in discussion with you guys about this idea, because... Um, Fundamentally, the way that we see social business is it's in some ways a new way um, to look at capitalism. Um, it's a new way of seeing how our human motivations can actually be reflected in a better way in capitalism. Um, it's about seeing that capitalism is not only driven by this homo economicus, this perfect uh, uh, profit maximizer, but that there are many other intentions that we all have as human beings and that they're actually really not reflected in capitalism. Um, and so one of the things that we believe in is to say that we have many more motivations in life um, that can range everything from love or just wanting to do something for your neighbor or wanting to do something for other people or whatever it might be. And somehow they are not reflected in capitalism at all. Um, all of these assumptions are being taken away from that picture. Um, and they only focus on this money-making uh, uh, aspect of us as humans. And I don't, do not believe that we're only money-making robots. That's obviously a very important part. Um, and we obviously may have to make our own money. But there are many other dimensions. And I, I'm very sure that you guys here in the room, given that this conference and you are all fellows of humanity in action, obviously see it probably quite similarly. Good. I have a presentation. I hope that was a good way of... Uh, distracting you guys. <clears throat> so yeah, before I jump into the examples and, and more details about what we actually do, I'll give you a little bit of a, uh, um, a general outlook of um, where we come from. So obviously everyone has seen this. The financial crisis has been going on. It's, it has hit the US. It has his, hit Europe, obviously, that I'm, where I'm from. Um, and so people have been questioning those institutions of capitalism, the financial institutions that have, are obviously at the core of capitalism. Um, but obviously, after the financial uh, crisis, then there was a subprime, uh, there was a, a governmental crisis, a sovereign debt crisis, um, which is still ongoing, especially in Europe, uh, due to many reasons, um, but among others also because we have a very strong welfare states over there, and maybe that's not the model that's going to work in the long run. Um, so we might have to think about other solutions. Um, but also, um, uh, yeah, I mean, but, but also there are other models um, the, of economic development, et cetera, that have been looked at, like NGOs, giving, charity, et cetera. And also these are being questioned. Even microfinance um, and some of these aspects have been questioned. Um, so, yeah, there is still poverty, both in poor countries and in rich countries. It exists. Um, and I don't want to continue talking about that dull stuff. What I believe in and what we believe in at Unos Social Business is that with a little bit of imagination, we can all do great things. Um, and things that seem impossible uh, today will be very, very possible um, very soon. I mean, Christopher Columbus uh, didn't know that there was another side of the world. He found it. 
Uh, Neil Armstrong, same thing. Uh, nobody thought that one could actually climb the moon, and we did it a few years later. Um, same as uh, nobody thought that the Berlin Wall uh, would ever fall and that the Cold War would ever end. It has happened. We've all seen it. It's done. Um, and the same uh, kind of has, has been applied within our history of uh, Mohammed Yunus uh, founding Grameen Bank and doing a lot of crazy things in, in a very poor country, Bangladesh, um, back then in the 70s. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about, about Yunus because I'm not sure about if you all know him or if you're all 100% aware of him. Back then in the 70s, um, people were saying, well, you cannot lend money to the poor because obviously they're not creditworthy. They'll never repay that money. So what to do about that? Uh, one man, this is him, Mohammed Yunus, did say, absolutely we can do that. Uh, why should these people not be able to be creditworthy? Why should they not pay back? Uh, he actually turned around the question and said, um, are banks people-worthy? Uh, if they can't serve the people that actually need the money. Because if you look at it, it's crazy. You kind of need to have money to get money. You need to, like, especially in the U.S., me as a foreigner, I lived here a few years ago. I wanted to get a credit card. And unfortunately, since I didn't have a credit history, I had never taken a loan here. They didn't want to give one to me. So um, in that sense, you would think, isn't that the service that banks do want to provide? Um, and in reality, then, they don't necessarily provide that. Um, so basically, what, what he basically came up with the idea of providing um, uh, yeah, loans, um, small loans to poor women in, develop, in, in Bangladesh in particular. And uh, so what came out of it was an organization uh, that started extremely small uh, with uh, a few cents, really, uh, a few dollars um, lent to a few women in, a, in one village. Um, turned into a nationwide bank. Uh, it is a bank. It has a banking license and all of these things um, that has served over 8.5 million people in Bangladesh, which means um, it has access to the families of about, or it, it means in total with the families, it's about 40 million people that uh, this bank has had impact on. Um, there are insane repayment rates of 98%. Um, most of the uh, borrowers, about but also over 98% are women uh, because we've seen that they are better in repaying their loans um, and they're also better in actually bringing those loans uh, for economic development for their family, for the education of the kids, etc. Um, and so this bank has come out of that bold idea to say, why don't we actually create an institution that serves, wow, surprise, surprise, the people that actually need the money. Um, so this was really the starting point. Um, but Grameen Bank was just the first thing that happened. Nowadays, funny enough, uh, since you're living in New York, um, this bank even has, let's say, a subsidiary, if you, if you want to, if you want to call it that way, in uh, New York City, because it's not a topic that's just relevant in Bangladesh, in a, in, a, um, in a poor country, but it's something that's also relevant in the richest country in the world, in the U.S., and obviously also many other countries. Um, so we have about 12,000 borrowers um, uh, all across, uh, well, mostly in, in, in New York, but we also have um, a subsidiary in um, Omaha, Nebraska, on the West Coast, etc. So it's growing and growing. And as I said, we have about 12,000 uh, 12, borrowers here um, uh, in the U.S., which I think is quite impressive given the fact that it was only started in 2008, the year that the financial crisis hit. Um, this organization was not at all hit by the financial crisis, if you want to uh, look at it that way. 
uh, we were actually just discussing this yesterday evening. Um, in some ways, what we were thinking about why actually was this organization, neither Grameen Bank nor this organization here in the U.S., hit by the financial crisis. Um, and Professor Yunus actually put it uh, quite nicely. He said, well, there are real things attached to those loans. The cow exists. When you buy a cow, you know, you milk it, you get a loan for that. That is a real thing. It's not some fantasy banking where you come up with der der derivatives that, um, that might not really actually be linked to any particular underlying asset anymore. Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting to see how, uh, how banking can be seen in, in very different ways. Yeah, um, but as I said, Grameen Bank was just the starting point. Um, back then in Bangladesh, as you see, Yunus sitting with the women over there in Bangladesh, asked them, what are, you, what are the other problems that you have? And what they saw is like the high default rates from the loans were then when people were not healthy when they, uh, not because they didn't want to pay back, but let's say they, they got pneumonia or whatever and they couldn't work for a period of time. So the first thing that um, we started addressing back then um, in the, in the uh, early, in the mid 70s and, and early 80s was to say, why don't we create healthcare services for the poor? That's a great idea. Um, so how did we do it back then? We said, okay, how, how can we address it? Well, we can, we can see if the government will do something about it good luck. That doesn't really work in a country like Bangladesh. Unfortunately, the governmental system is completely um, dysfunctional. Um, there are hospitals and so on in the rural areas, but um, nobody actually works there. Uh, so that doesn't really work. So then we thought, okay, NGO approach, uh, hmm, well then we're going to have to go fundraising for the rest of our lives. So that what really wasn't an option. So back then, uh, Yunus decided, why? Why can't we set this up in some ways in a financially self-sustainable way? Then we need the startup capital to get the whole thing, to get the ball rolling. Yes, we need that as investment, no question. But afterwards, the whole thing needs to cover its um, operating costs and needs to re repay the original investment. So that's kind of the first time when he thought about what we call social business nowadays. Something a problem that he's identified, how can we solve it in a financially self-sustainable way? So uh, th that was, uh, that healthcare was born. Uh, then uh, there were social businesses around livestock born. Grameen Fisheries was born. Your healthcare already jumped to that. Same thing around education um, and actually vocational training. Um, so there are several vocational training social businesses that we have. Um, let's say, a nursing college, for example, um, where uh, women from the uh, rural areas can apply, they get a student loan, they can then go to nursing school, uh, and they get a guaranteed job. So it's kind of like a 100% perfect loop um, where those women do not have to take any risk because they can't take risk. Obviously, they're super poor. They, they um, uh, don't have any um, reserves or anything like that. But given the fact that they have a safe job afterwards that's 100% guaranteed, they can take that leap, leap of faith and actually do that. And um, so we, we just had the first uh, batch of graduates uh, last year, um, and um, the school is growing right now. Um, Another um, example is uh, Grameen Phone, uh, a super exciting example. Back in the mid-90s, when I personally didn't even have a cell phone, I think I got my first cell phone in 1998 or 1999, uh, Yunus said, um, why don't we actually uh, create uh, cell phone services for these women? And then everyone said, are you crazy? Why do they need a cell phone? 
Well, there are obviously no grids in rural Bangladesh, so a fixed line was not really an option. Um, and they still need to communicate. They need to talk about what are the market prices of, I don't know, whatever I'm producing in the next village. If they have market transparency, they can earn much more money. They can, they can build their wealth. Um, they need to just talk to their family. They need to know when are you actually coming home tonight. Very simple things. Everything, everything the same that we do on a daily basis. Nowadays, the cell phone coverage um, is extremely high. It's over 70% in Bangladesh. Um, Grameen Phone um, has become the largest company by revenues and tax revenues for the government in Bangladesh. Uh, and it's a market leader um, with over 50%. Others have, of course, now entered the market, logically. Um, but this started as a social business um, back in the 90s and has, been, um, has become a large-scale, gigantic business in Bangladesh, which I find very impressive because often people say social business is not scalable. This is an example where it certainly is. Um, another one is um, the lack of access to energy. Uh, so, again, there's no rural grid. There's no... Um, plug where you can plug your cell phone in to charge it at night or anything like that or do whatever you want to do. It doesn't exist. So um, what to do? Again, revolutionary in the mid-90s. Nowadays, I think solar is, is quite well known and we, we all find that a totally normal source of energy. But back then in the mid-90s, it was crazy. Um, and so what they did is they started um, creating small solar home systems that people could install on their roofs um, and um, and they started trying to sell them in the mid-90s. But originally, people said, why should I buy that? That's crazy. Why should that thing make energy? Fire, like that, that makes energy. But why should this thing make energy? That doesn't make any sense. I don't understand that. People were thinking, this is like uh, some, some crazy idea. But they didn't really believe that this would happen. So at the beginning, it was extremely difficult to sell one solar panel a month was extremely difficult because you had to work with the people. You had to educate them. You had to convince them. You had to give them these things. Uh, uh, you have to, had to lend them to them and give, give uh, payback guarantees and so on because people didn't believe in that, obviously. Uh, nowadays, uh, Grameen Shakti sells around um, 1,000 solar panels a day. So it was one a day back then or maybe one a month uh, at the very beginning, and now it's 1,000 solar panels a day. Ugh, what am I saying? Yeah, it is a day. No, I am, I'm getting the numbers right. just want to make sure I'm not lying, but this is true. A thousand a day. Um, and they have over a million installed um, solar panels uh, all across the country. So it's one of the largest solar home system countries in the world, really, nowadays. Um, and so it took them since the mid-90s to create this one first million. But now that it is scaled up so strongly, um, it will take another two or maximum three years to get the second million. So obviously now the curve is going up like that, and it's much easier to expand and accelerate this whole process. And soon, hopefully, the whole country will be covered by this. Uh, enough examples from, uh, from, uh, that we, of social business that we've created completely on our own from scratch in that sense in Bangladesh. Um, but m let me tell you about a, a trend that happened um, in the mid-2000s um, when the first corporate, Danon, uh, came to us and said, this is interesting what you're doing with these social businesses. Um, can't we do something together? We also want to help. Um, is there anything that we, from our knowledge as, um, that we have at Danon, could do to actually help create development in Bangladesh? Um, and so there was a conversation back then, and the, um, both Yunus and the CEO of Danon decided, why don't we address the topic of uh, malnutrition? It's a major topic for kids until the age of five. 
um, if they don't get the right micronutrients and vitamins, their brain doesn't form in the right way. And um, so the IQ is uh, forever diminished. Uh, you can't actually really reverse it. Same holds true for stunting. Um, people don't grow to their normal potential if they don't have the right nutrients until the age of five. So it's a severe topic in Bangladesh. And so they, uh, they decided to do that. Why don't we address, why don't we try and address that? And so Grameen and Danone um, together formed a joint venture, 50-50. Uh, we put in our investment capital. They put in their investment capital to set this whole thing up. Danone provided their knowledge about production of yogurts, because what do we know about production of yogurts? Nothing. We provided our knowledge about how to um, work with uh, people in the rural areas, what their needs are, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and now uh, this company is up and running. It's going well. Um, it's selling about uh, 300,000 yogurts a day. Um, and it's, all, it's starting to expand all across the country. Same then uh, was happened with a with a new cor another corporate Veolia. They're one of the largest French utility companies. They said, "What can we do? We know how to make clean water." We said, "We our water is arsenic con contaminated, um, and the uh, top water um, is dirty, and um, obviously leads to diarrhea and all those things." They said, "Great, let's do something," and we created a joint venture again that. Um, uh, produces clean water um, and um, sells it throughout Bangladesh. Next one, BSF, a chemical company, mis treated mosquito nets, and so on and so on. So many examples where corporates have gotten involved, um, and I think that's, I'm sure that's going to be one of the points of discussion afterwards, because you're probably going to be interested in finding out how we feel about getting corporates involved in all of this, but we can bring that up in the, in the discussion afterwards. Um, so just to summarize again, um, what do we, do, what do we mean when we talk about social business? Because the term is, obviously nowadays it's floating around, it's being used for many things. I mean, even social media businesses are sometimes called social businesses. Um, and so just to clarify what we exactly mean, it's a company that's created for social benefit rather than for personal private profit. So I do it because I want to solve a problem rather than because I want to get rich in that sense. Um, it is like a business that generates its own revenues to cover its costs, so it has to have some kind of a product or services service that somebody actually wants to buy. Otherwise, obviously, you're not going to generate any revenues. Um, investors do get their initial investment back, um, but above that, all further profits that would be taken out of the uh, a company would go back into the cycle of social business, either into that social business to expand and improve it or into any other social business um, to expand and improve that or start that off. Um, exactly. So this is just to give you um, a very quick summary of, of our background in terms of like our history. Where do we come from as Yunus, as Grameen family? Um, and, um, and now I want to talk a little bit about uh, the organization that um, Yunus and I founded about two years ago um, because we said, great, it's amazing what's happening in Bangladesh. And um, Bangladesh uh, is one of um, one of... I, don't, I wouldn't say few, but is one of the countries that is actually managing to reach their Millennium Development Goals um, by 2015. They will manage to get that on time. Um, but how can we actually get that success from Bangladesh to other countries? Because there are many other countries out there uh, that also have issues. And so we then decided to create uh, UNO Social Business together to help create those social businesses in other, other places as well. And I'll show you a very short video, if I find where, where the video is, um, that will help to give you... Yes, I have a kind helper here. That one, the right one. This one? Mm -hmm. 
Thank you. To give you a bit of an impression of what we do, it's much better than I explaining this. Good luck. What's the difference between a social business and traditional business? Like a charity, a social business works to solve a social problem. But like a business, it's also financially sustainable because all profits are reinvested to help the business grow and benefit society. What is the difference between a social investor and a traditional investor? A traditional investor invests for his own benefit. A social investor invests to benefit others. At Unis Social Business, we help connect social investors with social businesses for a very special purpose, to address the world's most pressing problems, such as nutrition, energy, environment, education, and health. We do this through social business incubator funds. Our local incubator teams search for and create social business opportunities to help communities in need by developing a social business plan, providing real-world business training, and opening doors to useful networks. When these businesses become successful, the social business pays back the initial investment, so the same dollar can be recycled to help more social businesses. Same dollar, new social business. In Haiti, we've invested in a bakery that produces fortified bread for the local community suffering from malnutrition. This bakery has created a social impact at every stage of the value chain by generating demand for the local farmers, creating local employment, and most importantly, producing affordable nutrients so that even the poorest citizens can live healthier lives. Eunice Social Business is driven by enthusiastic international consulting, finance, and development professionals in countries like Haiti, Albania, Brazil, Tunisia, Togo, and Germany. And we're also expanding to other countries. We are Eunice Social Business, and we are passionate about developing business solutions to solve the world's greatest social problems. <laughs> no, so, um, yeah, I think that explains quite well what we do. Um, the idea is really that we say, <clears throat> we were thinking about how can we best really bring those social businesses to another country. And so Professor Yunus and I were looking at each other, and we weren't really sure how to do it. Um, but eventually then we thought, um, let's take cues from, from a normal business and see how they actually develop an ecosystem. Um, and uh, so, for example, we looked at the tech industry um, and, we, um, and we looked at the venture capital industry and we actually said, um, how can we use the venture capital and incubator approach to now apply it to the social sector? Um, because we felt that um, you need basically two pillars to get social business going. On the one hand, you need an incubator, an organization that helps foster ideas that supports local entrepreneurs and that chaperones them along the way, trains them, gives them all the access that they need to networks, etc. But then you also need a fund. You need a chunk of money um, so people can also 
really implement their ideas and uh, don't get stuck with a wonderful idea but can't implement it since they don't have the startup capital. So that's exactly what we um, decided doing. We oh, great, I have a clicker. Yes. Um, so we, yes, that's what the incubator does, and this is what the fund does. So we decided to basically have an incubator um, that helps, this, um, that helps um, identify opportunities that runs around the country all day long with a local team. Um, let's say in Haiti, for example, our, our team is um, fully Haitian. Um, and uh, they identify social businesses, they train them, they give them all the support they need, and once they're investment ready, um, they uh, then go to the fund, propose them to the fund, and the fund invests in those social businesses. So now, just to give you a bit more um, ideas, basically what this fund does, it, it collects, on the one hand, money from donors, people that are normal ch charity donors that say, actually, this is a good idea. I want to turn my philanthropic capital into something that is, that is more efficiently addressing the problem. Um, but it also takes loans. Um, so it does take loans from development institutions or, or even high net worth individuals, really whoever wants to give us a loan. So um, the fund is kind of interesting because it blends these very different types of capital um, and then provides them in form of equity and debt to the social businesses. Um, and, uh, excitingly, I have to mention, up until now, over the last um, two years, um, well, I should maybe say one thing before. So basically, we really started this two years ago. We were three people at the table, Yunus, Sophie, and me as founders. Now, after two years, and it's exactly two years because we decided to do this here in New York exactly two years ago, um, now we're a team of 35 people. Um, we, um, back then, were active in one country um, outside of Germany, which was Haiti. Um, now we're um, active in seven countries. And um, we've uh, invested in about 20 social businesses, um, on average about somewhere between 300 and 500,000 US dollars investment size. Uh, we've raised and invested a, a fund of $12 million up until now. And yesterday night uh, was the launch um, of a new global fund um, that we have put together. Um, we um, are right now raising for uh, about $35 million um, for the next uh, two, three years um, to invest in about 70 social businesses in those seven countries, so 10 per country. Very simple math. Um, and, um, yeah, we had the launch evening yesterday, and uh, we are lucky to announce about $9 million in commitments that were made yesterday. $5 million from USAID um, that will be investing globally, um, $1 million from Deutsche Bank, and another $3 million from the Swedish Postcode Lottery. So uh, it was a successful evening. I hope uh, we also got a few additional people on board, but we'll find that out now um, going forward. Yeah, here's the team, lovely people, lovely partners. So where do we have these incubator funds? In Haiti, Albania, Colombia, and India right now. Actually, there's one missing. Um, and we're now expanding into Tunisia, Uganda, and Brazil as we speak. So we, we're doing the first investments in Tunisia um, by the end of the year, Uganda, um, beginning of next year, and Brazil um, also end of year, next, beginning next year, roughly. Um, and now I'll bombard you with a few more social business examples, and then I really want to go into the discussion, but I just want to make it very concrete for you, because especially in Bangladesh, we've been talking about very big examples, um, because obviously it's been growing there over the last 20 years or so. But obviously now in new countries, we have to start a bit smaller, and I just want to give you a bit of a feeling of what that means. Um, and um, obviously also, since you guys are all activists um, and, um, and excited about solving social problems, maybe you'll get inspired by some of these, or maybe you're already doing some of your own. Um, that is all obviously possible. 
Um, primary education is an issue in, in Haiti. I don't need to explain that to people. Uh, the um, governmental system doesn't work. Private is very, very difficult. We were like, how can we make a business out of primary education? Because the kids don't have the money to pay us. So what's the business model behind it? And we were scratching our heads, didn't really know. Vocational training is much easier because it's closer to a job. So there's a revenue stream somewhere in the future. But how do we actually do it with primary education? So we came up with a workaround uh, attached to um, some of the schools that we wanted to um, support and make financially self-sustainable, we created chicken farms. Exciting, exciting. And we invested somewhere, yeah, about 140 in one, 160, 330 in, in, in the other um, to create large-scale chicken farms that would then provide their profits to the school so the school um, would be able um, to um, run their operations. So actually, these chicken farms are either owned by the community or owned by, um, owned by the school itself. It's a workaround. Um, obviously, unemployment is an issue in Haiti. Also not a surprise. What we did is you, we will not be able to create sufficient jobs in Haiti because there's just not enough industry in Haiti. There are, I don't know, below 10 large companies. Um, so how can we do this? We created an entrepreneurial training school to make sure that people have the skills to be entrepreneurs and have the network to be entrepreneurs. Again, runs as a social business. Haiti is deforested. We created a, uh, it only has 2% um, forest coverage left, which is a major problem because then you don't have, you don't have um, arable land. You cannot actually do smallholder farming. What did we do? Um, created a Dretrofa plantation that A, reforests, B, creates jobs, and C, also creates alternative energy forms. Um, another bakery, um, a large-scale initiative that we have launched together with Clinton Foundation and Virgin. Uh, we uh, basically had a meeting also about, about a year ago with Richard Branson and said, um, hey, we understand you thrive on challenges. You want to go uh, to the moon and back and or into space with, with your crazy endeavors. Um, there are other challenges that we could maybe focus you on. There's one. Uh, let's start with reforestation Haiti. What do you think? And he was like, yeah, actually, it's a cool idea. Why not? So we started working together and are now, right now, um, identifying um, the first uh, forestry um, entrepreneurs. So uh, this could be everything ranging from people, um, organizations that are um, planting, uh, doing smallholder farming, um, all the way through to uh, processing agricultural goods like mangoes, making them um, have higher values so the people that are producing them can... Um, so, for example, dried mango or avocado oil, etc. Those are all more high-margin um, types of products that then ensure that the producers actually earn more. Um, I'll jump over that. Some new ones. Albania. Another one, and I'll show you the video because videos are much better in explaining. The second video of a beautiful handicraft social business in Albania. It's in Albanian, so I hope you speak that fluently. I was assuming that it's, a, it's an international crowd here, but there are subtitles. Sorry. It's the this one? Yeah, perfect. Lozafa is an organization that is a very important part of the 
që ka rreth të vetës 13 qëndra artizane që prodhojnë produkte të ndryshme tradicionale, që nga puna me dorë e shtizave, dhere të këndja e qëllimave apo e copave në të zja dhe të këshëndismat në copa me materiale edhe ricikli. Bashkë me profesor Junus, në janarën e patë mundësin që të shikëm nga afer aktivitetin e këtyre qëndrave artizane, Në bashkëpinim me ta, ne po kërkojmë që të gjejmë më shumë klienta për produktet e këtyre grave. Të rrisim volumin e shikjeve edhe në këtë mënyrë të kryojmë të ardurat e shëndrushme e njëtë më të mirë për to. Në këtë iniciativ, Junus ka përpshirë edhe Kiva për të nëmbështetur në e me tonde për të realizuar planin strategjik tonë. Vetimet nga aktivitetit trektar i Rozafës, në bas të misionit e saj, do të shkojmë për investime në trajnime të vazhdush në përqëndra artizanët të grave, në plerin e pajisjeve të reja për shvillimin e produkteve dhe në strumenta marketingu. who founded it and said, hey, can we not expand your crowdfunding website also to social that it's a larger investment? He's like, sure, we'd love to do that. And so we've been working on, on actually getting this off the ground and have just launched this. And it was amazing. Uh, really, within 24 hours, the loan was funded. And it's, it's a small loan for our uh, normal sizes. It was $25,000. But that was a big loan for Kiva. So... is something that can really be applied um, all across different industries. So um, what we see in the case of Rosafa is there are producers that don't have a lot of money, um, that are usually not organized, um, that don't really know what are the right designs to make or the right quality to produce of the product that they're making, and they don't have access to the, to the, to the markets because they're sitting somewhere in rural Albania and they don't have access to, let's say, Tirana, the main capital city, or even the European market to actually be able to get good prices for the great products that they're producing. And so what we've created here um, with Rosafa is kind of a, a good intermediary, an intermediary that wants to find a way that these women have the highest income that they can have. And so they broker between international buyers that are willing to pay high prices. Um, they know the market that is going to buy, so they do know it's has to be a sexy product, otherwise nobody's going to buy it. So they help them with what are the right layouts of the, these, these, agri, uh, these uh, products. Um, and, that's, and they also bundle the volumes. Um, so this is a way that we can really create higher income. This is something that doesn't only work in handicraft. Whoop. Oh, my God. There was a hole there. <laughs> 
just trying to entertain you. Um, I know it's, it's early. Um, and then we did this also in Ghana, completely different thing, with shia nuts, exact same model. Um, shea nut, I think that's how it's pr pr pronounced in, in English. So shea nut, you, could, you make shea butter out of it, um, whatever body shop sells that, the women will know. Um, in any case, in any case, same thing. Those women are working in rural in, in the north of, of Ghana. They're earning nothing, um, and they're trying to sell it. They don't really know what the quality is supposed to look like. They put some nice herbs in there because they think that that's what the market wants. The market doesn't want the herbs. So we taught them to say, don't put the herbs in there. Then the butter is going to be much better, and the international market is going to buy it. By now, we created together with SAP, a business software company, a business that's really thriving. They're, the, they're one of the largest uh, Shia uh, uh, nut and butter producers now, and they have um, improved the lives of 10,000 women there, and this is only over the last three, three and a half years. Um, these women have improved their income um, by somewhere between 100 and 200%, depending on each woman. So it's like a fundamental difference. And the only thing that we did is we cut out these five, six, seven, eight middle men that didn't really do much apart from taking value out of the value chain and made sure that these women actually um, got that value themselves. And so that's, so in other words, I just wanted to show that this Wolzafa example is kind of a, it's a, it's a whole mindset uh, shift. It's a different approach of uh, making sure that smallholder, either farmers or producers, um, have access to the, to the markets and therefore get higher incomes. And to, to be honest, I think I've talked enough now. Um, I think I'll just leave it at that and um, I'll just open it up for discussion. So if you have any questions, I'm happy to take answers uh, or I'll give answers. You know what I mean. Um, I was curious, you mentioned the 12,000 borrowers in the U.S. Um, I was wondering, could you elaborate a little bit on the operations, how that works, and then how many roughly are in the New York area? Um, well, it works the exact same way as in Bangladesh. Um, so women come together. Uh, they form a group of about four women have to come together, four or five women have to come together and say, we, we are a group we would like to uh, take a loan. Each one gets their individual loan, but they are kind of a group of a support group that supports each other in making sure that these businesses get successful. One says, um, I want to um, I want to do a nail studio. The other one says, I want to, um, I don't know, um, have a little internet business. And the third one uh, creates websites or whatever it might be. And they say, okay, those are good business models. They support each other. They get a loan from the Grameen, Grameen America here in the U.S. Um, and they have to repay that on a monthly basis. Um, no, actually, it's on a weekly basis here. Uh, they have to repay that on a weekly basis. They also um, get an account um, at um, an affiliated bank, because actually here in the U.S. we're not a bank, because becoming a bank is extremely expensive. It costs millions and millions and millions. Um, so that's why we're working with, a, with an associated bank here. Um, and then they also, um, they're asked to put savings each month to put uh, savings into the bank as well. So it's a um, loan and savings kind of program. So it really works the exact same way as it does in Bangladesh. And over time, the women repay. And they have the exact same um, repayment rates. I think it's even slightly higher. It's 99% over here uh, compared to 98% in Bangladesh. So, Yes. So uh, in Bangladesh, it's probably somewhere between 150 and $500 per loan. And here, it's about $1,500. But it's actually, surprisingly, not that much higher. Uh, which I found quite interesting. And, um, but obviously, like, I mean, in, uh, there, there are a lot of poor areas in, in, in the capital of capitalism, New York as well.
Um, what I found really interesting about this is how you are so integrated in the community, and so I wanted you to expand on the process of first, whether it's on the social business side, of identifying a need in the community that the, obviously the community also responds to and, and buys into, or when it comes to these small investments, how, do, how you reach out and identify you know, these, these lenders and how they find you as well, this kind of, basically how you embed yourself successfully in that community. And, and on the social business side, I, I, it was just—I mean, it was a shared theme between your presentations. Um, well, on the microfinance side, um, the way that it works is—I mean, obviously in Bangladesh we've been established for like many, many years. So there, it's just Grameen Bank is a household name. There's nobody in the country that doesn't know who Grameen Bank is and what it does and who Yunus is. So there, it's not an issue. Everyone knows it. Whew, they want to use it. I'm sorry been a difficult week. I'll just leave this here. Um, and, um, and also in new countries, the way it's actually, it's, it's just starting to get to know the community. So first of all, we hire people that are in that community that already know people. And then it really does work as a kind of word of mouth uh, situation because like here in, here in New York at the beginning, I, I don't know if you know this, this idea of payday loans here. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a pretty crazy concept. You have a check, but you can't sh get money from the bank because you don't have a bank account there because they don't want to give you a bank account. So you have a piece of check, a piece of paper that says, I, this is my money. I don't know, whatever it might be, $1,000, but I can't actually get it because nobody is giving me the money. That's crazy. So there are these payday lenders that then or whatever they're called, there's different words for them. You go there, and then uh, for a 1,000, you get whatever, 800 or something like that. I don't know what the exact amounts is. It's, everyone has their own rates, but they're terrible. Um, so at the beginning, uh, when they started here in 2008, people of Grameen, uh, Grameen America were running around and saying, oh, we can give you a loan. Uh, this is what it's going to cost. We don't want any collateral. Uh, you don't have to have any credit history. Etc. Etc. And the people were like, "Those guys are crazy. Is that a religious group? I mean, they're like, are they proselytizing, or why would they give us these kinds of loans without any security, without any collateral, um, for a relatively low uh, low rate? Why would they do that? Um, and so it, it was difficult at the beginning, and then you just have to build trust in the community, and then it's word of mouth, and then oh, it has worked. Blah blah. That's really how it works. It's just hard work. That's it." Uh, you mentioned the high cost of incorporating as a bank in the United States. I'm, kind of, I'm interested to hear about, um, in the United States in particular and around the world, regulatory hurdles that you face in um, operating as a kind of small scale, smaller scale lender. Um, and if, you, if smaller scale businesses you find face particularly uh, uh, singular regulatory hurdles as they, they do in many communities in, in this country. Um, so first of all, I should clarify, I'm not the microfinance expert here. There might be much more knowledgeable people here in the room. I personally don't run the microfinance side of things. Like These are my colleagues, but I can talk for them a little bit at least. Um, so we, uh, my part of the business is the venture capital side of things, which is a little bit different, but which also has problems with regulation here and there. No, no question. We always Regulation is always... 
uh, not easy to deal with. But uh, just to answer the question on the microfinance side, yes, that is a problem in most countries still, even though microfinance has been around for, I don't know, 20, 30 years now. Um, but still, in most countries, microfinance organizations have a very hard time at getting banking licenses. And what having a banking license, what the important thing about the banking license is, is that you can take savings. The important thing is that you, if you, basically as a very simplified way, as a microfinance organization, there are two ways of getting capital, or three ways actually. Either you get donations, so you have capital that you can lend out, uh, or you refinance yourself on the capital market, but then there are investors that want some high return from you. Or thirdly, uh, you can go for the old banking model, like banking used to be, normal commercial banks, take savings from your borrowers and lend that money out. That's what banks actually do. They just take money from their one, bor one borrower and lend it to another borrower. That's basically what they do. But that savings part is unfortunately not allowed in most countries for many reasons, and each country has their own history about that. Um, but that is the one fundamental um, uh, issue that we face. So it's much more um, difficult to actually get um, loan capital because you have to either have commercial uh, loan capital, um, which means that lending it out is going to be higher because your cost of capital is higher, or you have donation capital, which is always difficult to get at. Um, and um, so you're limited in terms of your growth. That's why the savings idea is much more powerful. And on the venture capital side, there are all kinds of regulations and issues as well, but I don't want to bore you with all those details because it, that very much depends on the country again. Like Tunisia doesn't even have a, doesn't even have a concept of a venture capital fund of what we want to set up. So because they don't really have a lot of private sector, sector institu institutions because um, under Ben Ali that didn't really exist that much. So the laws that exist in other countries don't really exist there. So we're struggling right now with finding out how to best set up our fund, or we have struggled. Um, but yeah, it's different in all the countries. Yes, and I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> um, just first want to say that I love what Eunice Social Business is doing. I worked in microfinance for several years as well and really think that's, you know, the next step. Um, one thing that I guess I've struggled with with the social business models that, you know, for a typical venture capitalist, they have 10 different investments. They only really expect one of those to make money, and that pays everything else back. If you have 10 different social businesses, only one is successful, let's just say, in an unfortunate example, and they just pay back whatever is invested in them. How do you recuperate those losses, or, or how do you balance that risk? Um, no, that's a very good question. Um, first of all, the businesses that we invest in are maybe slightly different than the typical um, venture capitalist would invest in, in the sense that, I don't know, where is their venture capital? There's venture capital in the tech industry. Then you're betting on who's the next Twitter kind of thing. So that's a, quite a crazy bet to make. Same would be in biotech. Also very different, like you don't know what is going to be the next, I don't know, molecule that's going to make it. So that's, those are very, very, very crazy bets that you're making there. So our bets, of course, our investments are risky because we are uh, working in crazy countries where um, obviously there's a lot of risk, but the business models that we invest in are um, usually a bit more solid. They're like a chicken farm, a big chicken farm. If you run that well, if you have good management, if you support them well, that should be a business. If there's no market for chickens right now and you're going to um, sell it at a lower price than what, what can be imported, 
that should be a business that should be successful if you run it well. Um, same with a bakery. It's a simple business model, so it should run well. So basically, um, the types of businesses that we invest in are, let's say, they're maybe not that, not in any case super innovative, um, but they're good, solid businesses. And that's why I think there, there's already a little bit of less risk than maybe compared to a normal venture capital fund. Um, and then there are a few other things that we do to, to ensure that the risk um, is, is, is somewhat mitigated. A, um, we provide this technical assistance or whatever you want to call it where we support those entrepreneurs um, and we do a lot of work in that direction. And then B, obviously, um, we, um, we take um, interest from our um, borrowers and we also take a management fee from our investors. And so with that margin that we have, we buffer out some of the risk as well. And then finally, um, what we do in some cases as well is we make small test investments like this one with Rosafa where we made a $25,000 investment. Um, and then we see if it works, and then we do a, a staged larger investment afterwards. So these are a few ways of mitigating the risk. But the real answer is, I mean, we've been around for two slash three years, depending on Hades a little bit longer. So the real answer is we will find out over the long run um, and um, cross your fingers, hopefully, that it will go well. No, but I, I mean, I'm convinced that I think the model will work, but, um, but we'll have to see what the repayments will really be in the long run. No, I'm not expecting that 100% will repay, no. Um, of, of course not. That would not be diligent uh, in our business model. No, we have, we have assumptions in our um, financial models of what the, repay, what, the, what the risk is, and it depends on the country as well. Um, so we've found ways to still make the fund financially sustainable in the sense that he's, the fund needs to stay the same size. That's what we want. We don't necessarily have to have it grow. Um, that's our thinking. Hi. Um, could you talk about some of the challenges that uh, social businesses face in addressing scale and maybe how they differ from a typical profit-minded um, company or business? Um, well, first of all, the thing is, it's a, it's a good question that you're asking because people often say, oh, social business, that's just a small thing. Um, that's just a small little initiative, but it's not ever going to grow. Um, I would say, and, and the argument that people often make is, I don't know, you don't have that strong, mean profit drive, so you're just not going to get there, or your leadership is not motivated because they don't get a lot of money or bonuses, so how are you going to do that? Um, and some people also say you don't have access to the right capital, uh, or you don't have enough access to capital. Um, and with the first two, I completely disagree because, like, I'm super motivated about my business and I'm not making more money if I create more impact in that sense. So that doesn't really change my personal motivation. And I've seen that with other entrepreneurs as well. And there are many social entrepreneurs that pull their, take their motivation from somewhere else. Um, in terms of the capital, um, that is still in many cases an issue because if you want to go to a bank, like many small and medium sized businesses do, um, people sometimes find it a bit weird that you have this social motivation. Um, so you have to pitch your idea in a slightly different way. Often you just have to say, hey, we're a great business. That's the story you have to tell. Um, so there's not a lot of specialized capital right now. I mean, it's starting to grow um, for, um, for social investments, I would say. Um, so if you want to use traditional forms, you can do that. Um, banks will look at you funny because you have a social motivation. Venture capitalists say, oh, we want all this return. 
um, and uh, you might not be able to provide that because eventually you might run into a trade-off between social and financial return, and you don't want that, possibly. Um, but as I'm saying, the industry or the, the infrastructure, the ecosystem, the social finance ecosystem is growing um, in many countries now. Uh, and I think slowly but surely there, is, there are other sources that are coming about um, for these businesses. And that's why I don't really think in the long run it will be an issue. I think in the long run great ideas and great entrepreneurs will be the issue. Maybe now there's a difficult period in, in, in the interim, um, but I think in the end it's going to be great entrepreneurs in that sector. And the sector is growing, so I think there will be enough financial capital available. You mentioned a few corporate partnerships, and I was wondering if you actively pursue partnerships with corporations, if you wait for them to come to you, um, and if you have a vision of this kind of social business model being a real change in how multinational corporations think about doing business, or is it really a complement to that kind of uh, business structure? Um, well, the answer is it, um, it depends a little bit on the case. Um, in the case, whatever, in Danon, in some of the Bangladeshi cases, they came to us. Um, later on, the one with BASF, for example, I knew them because they used to be a client of mine when I was working at the Boston Consulting Group. So I just knew them. I said, hey, don't you want to get introduced and so on. So it's like a little bit of a, it, it depends on each business. It's not that we have like cold calling lists and like call all the corporates and say, do you want to engage with us? Like that we don't do. Uh, some people might do that, but we, that, that's not the approach that we do. It just happens through meetings, through encounters, I don't know, going through conferences like CGI next week or yesterday Yunus was speaking the day before at the, and we were giving a workshop at the UN Global Compact where there were tons of corporates and they heard about what we're doing, they were interested. So it, like in terms of like how do we get to them, it, it um, depends. And then uh, in terms of how I think this is going to change business, um, I mean, I hope it will change business. I think it will change business alone through the fact that it's in some ways leading by example. So for example, in the case of Danon, um, they created that small little Grameen Danon social business in Bangladesh. And after that, uh, they said, oh, that's funny because this is not gonna actually pay any dividends to my shareholders. Um, how can I argue this to my shareholders? That's what the CEO said and I, we're like, whatever, solve the problem. Um, and he said, I really want to do this. And so what he did actually is he went back to his shareholders and said, um, how are we going to do this? I really want to make this investment. I think it makes sense. We, what we have to give, like our mission is to also obviously uh, give back to society in some ways. And then in the end, the shareholders agreed to create a separate fund, uh, the Danone Communities Fund, where part the company, part their shareholders, and later on partly the employees put money into it. And this fund invests in social businesses now around the globe. So they've done many more investments apart from the Grameen Danon example, and they've created the Danon Communities Fund. And just, I'm just making this as an example of seeing that had this specific business has changed the business fundamentally not only through the Danon Communities Fund, but actually then also they started thinking more, wow, it's so interesting to actually look at my business from the perspective of society. That's a different way of looking at it. Because up until now, they were looking at it, oh, how can I create an Actimel that also has, I don't know, vanilla chocolate flavor or something like that, because maybe somebody's going to buy that. There's a market opportunity there. Vanilla chocolate Actimel. 
And so that's the way they had been looking at their products and their product development and their innovation. But they hadn't really been thinking about what would be the best, cheapest, uh, and most healthy yogurt for, I don't know, kids under the age of five. They hadn't thought about it in that way. So um, once they started doing that through the social business idea, um, they started actually changing their whole strategy process. So when they come up with new products, uh, this is one of the steps that they have to go through. What does my product look like from the perspective of society? And suddenly all different, all kinds of different products come out. And, and um, it was also something fascinating where I was talking to one of the R&D people and he said, that is so crazy. I just had never had the task to create a great yogurt. I always had a task to create um, a yogurt that has a higher uh, return on investment. So um, it, it's, it's, it's interesting to see how that has changed the mindset. And then a final point I'll make about Danone is that um, <clears throat> they changed their management compensation. And if we all think, I mean, if we're under the assumption that money is the thing that drives people, what they've done is they've linked that money drive to social performance as well. So one-third of, uh, one of the management um, bonus is driven by financial performance. One-third is driven by operational performance. And one-third is now driven by um, social performance. So in other words, one-third is now driven by the social performance of every single employee, which is quite a significant part. So that's just as important as your financial performance. Wow. That's pretty fundamental. And so there you see how that idea of social business really has really fundamentally changed uh, the company, the corporate itself. And it has happened in some of the other com companies we've been working with as well. Oh, yeah, perfect. Yay. We have another mic. Um, do you guys have a specific methodology for when you go into a new space? And so, like, you talked about you have different teams and local communities around the country and around the world. So is, is there a specific, um, either a BCG or what is your process of problem analysis? And then how do you go from, okay, here's an education challenge in Haiti to let's do chicken farming? I mean, how do you get from A to B? Yeah. <clears throat> So our approach is really more an entrepreneur-led approach in the sense, A, of course, we have a local team. The local team knows the local problems. Those are people that have worked in that country for many years, and they understand the local surrounding. So that's the first thing. So we always want local teams um, that run the local offices. Otherwise, we don't believe that me as a German girl, I'm going to solve the problems of Haiti. That's just not going to work. Then um, they know the problems, we, and then they do a kind of a market analysis to know what are the most uh, pressing needs, etc. But then we identify entrepreneurs, and it is really the idea of the entrepreneurs that drives us um, to make an investment decision, because we believe that these entrepreneurs know much better what the problems are, because they're also from the country, than we. So it's not like we are telling them you have to create this business. Of course, sometimes we give ideas here and there, or we tweak the existing ideas from our experience in other countries also, but generally it has to be entrepreneur-driven, um, and... Um, yeah, and that's, that's how, how the ideas are formed. So that's why maybe in one country uh, we will have very different social businesses than in another one because it's based on the problems that exist in the specific market. Did I answer your question? I don't think so, right? So, so here's a problem in the country you No, um, we haven't done that much like that. It's really more that uh, we pitch 
social business as an idea to potential entrepreneurs, potential NGOs, potential local corporates. We say, why don't you think about with your mindset and with your set of knowledge and expertise what you could do to solve the problems that you see. So it's not that we say, oh, we want you to create... It's not like we say, oh, handicraft people don't have access to the market. Um, it's them saying, um, oh, we see that there's this problem, and then we help them with, with finding a solution for it. It's more that way around. But to be honest, it also it, it is slightly varies from country to country. And so, for example, since Michael is here, um, we're just setting up uh, a new, um, a new um, office in Tunisia, as I was saying, and we're just making the first few investments there. But um, next year, we're hoping to collaborate with the Yale World Fellows to kind of create a, um, some kind of a, a program um, where entrepreneurs would be selected where they can go through a program, they have access to Yale faculty, they work with them, um, they get formed as entrepreneurs and their idea gets formed over, let's say, two months or something like that. Um, and then they launch their projects rather than the other way around as I was describing up until now. So we're experimenting with different kind of incubation approaches because we have to see what works best and it might be different in other um, uh, locations. But Obviously, I mean, we've been around for two years, so we still have to find out what's the best way um, to get successful ideas and entrepreneurs to the table. What's the timing? Uh, you, you talked about, um, you know, getting companies motivated to invest in these types of, whether these are corporate partners or whoever. Um, how much of that is, are you, do you try to market that as part of their already existing corporate re social responsibility programs? You pitch it as something different or new. Mm -hmm. um, and then when you talked about evaluating bonuses, for example, a third based on social performance, how is that measured? Um, you know, financials are numbers. They're, mm -hmm. You crunch the numbers, but uh, how would you, what criteria is used to do that? Um, so on the measurement, um, they have key performance indicators that could be, I don't know, uh, for example, in, within the Danone context, that can have many, many, um, uh, many aspects. So, for example, how much volunteering ha have you done, or how much have you worked with specific employees and tried to integrate them, or how much have you, um, I don't know, uh, worked on a specific social business that they're already working on, or they have several, uh, several kinds of uh, larger scale initiatives also in the. Um, sustainability side of on the sustainability side of things. So, it really um, there are K KPIs that are defined um, for each specific manager. So it depends on the whatever the person is working on. But um, if they once they have them, they then identify for this specific key performance indicator some kind of a target that that guy needs to reach. So it is being quantified. You just have to come up with different KPIs rather than it's not uh, EBIT or pro what kind of return on investment. It's other. Um, types of measures that you use. Sort of directly yeah. Yes. Exactly. 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 Um, and the second question that you were asking, what was that again? Um, how oh, how do we pitch it to corporates? That's the thing. We don't really pitch it to the corporates because we don't want to run around and like, I, I don't know, it's not really our style somehow. Um, it happens because, I don't know, we go to conferences, we meet people, and we want to make sure that it really the, the willingness also comes from them and that we don't have to push them. Um, and then, to be honest, it depends on um, the corporate again. In some cases, uh, the investment capital comes from uh, the CEO budget because the CEO thinks he wants to do this. In other cases, it's product development. 
it's innovation, and in some cases it's also CSR. So it really depends on where the CEO kind of allocates it within the business. Yeah. Was there another? I don't know, what, what's the timing? Do we, how, how much do, it's, it's over at one, right? Okay, just checking. So there's one more or two more questions, maybe. Uh, this is somewhat of a 30,000 foot question, but a question that's been in my mind throughout your presentation is, where is the state in all of this? Uh, you're working in lots of different countries. Um, some of the projects that you're doing include um, provision of services that would normally be provided by the state, so electricity, uh, clean water, even education. Uh, when you're working in these countries, are you coordinating with the host country governments? Um, at the end of the day, are your projects owned by taxpayers? Uh, or ultimately, is it the investor who's going to own something like the water filtration plant or the education system um, or the electric grid? Uh, ultimately, how do you coordinate with states and who owns the project uh, once it's completed? Um, so one thing is clear. We don't want to take away the social responsibility of states. They should do their thing. We would be happy if they did their thing. In many countries, they just don't do their thing. Sorry, my voice is leaving me. <coughs> they just don't do it. Uh, they say that, for example, in Haiti, education is a right. But only, like, I don't know, 20% of kids have access to it. So what are you going to do in the meantime? We can, of course, wait and see if the state is going to solve it. But Haiti, for example, uh, has a triple D rating. They can't even take loans, so I don't really see. Their budget is basically empty. They're not um, getting any taxes, so how are they going to pay for it? They just can't. So meanwhile, we get started. And what we do is, I mean, if, if we hope, and I don't know that there are different views on what states should do and how much they should get involved, um, if that's our end goal, that we hope that the state's going to take care of that eventually, okay, great. Then meanwhile, we just remind them by doing our work that there's a need here. Um, so our role might then just be to remind them of that by actually doing something, because if we're there, there's obviously a need. Um, <clears throat> but, um, but generally, of course, we do tr I mean, it, it doesn't hurt to coordinate with them. We don't want to make ourselves ever dependent um, um, on, on any uh, governments. Uh, we also don't want to be politically active. We're politically completely independent. But, for example, in Haiti now also, the Haitian government has seen that we're involved there. They've been super supportive recently. Um, uh, they, they like what we do, and they're happy if we're successful. And that's actually also the case in some other countries. So, for example, in Albania, we were even invited by the Albanian government to set this thing up because they say, hey, we need other actors in society that address some of these problems. So up until now, we haven't had issues uh, apart from in Bangladesh where the government does hate us. Um, but in other countries, we really haven't had issues with the government. They've actually been more supportive because they see that they cannot uh, solve it. And if you're a bit enlightened, then you should actually invite others to help solve the problems. So um, that's the approach, yeah. Thanks for your wonderful presentation. Um, I, guess, I guess I was just curious a little bit more about your personal story, how you got involved into this and why, and, you know, was this a career switch for you or a natural follow-up? And related to that, I sort of got curious during your presentation, um, uh, looking at the kind of uh, uh, people like Brandon or Clinton or Eunice, 
sort of how they use their name brand almost to set up these kind of companies and uh, whether you could relate that to sort of um, the question about pitching it to corporate because you seem to say that, well, these things are very informal. These happen at conferences. That's how we get connected. And it sounds a little bit like you need a person like Eunice with kind of the exposure um, uh, you know, to get uh, inside the door. And I was just very curious uh, what your experience is with that and sort of working with him under his brand name. Um, yeah, and how you see that. Uh, well, my personal story very quickly is um, that, uh, well, I used to, I don't know, I went to business school, went, uh, started in consulting, did that for, I don't know, five or six years, um, worked as, at the Boston Consulting Group, among others, also here in New York. And then I was kind of sitting here and I was like, hmm, so I'm going to do this the rest of my life. I mean, not the worst job. I mean, it's interesting, of course, but... Uh, somehow I was just asking myself, and then I said, okay, maybe I'll do a leave of absence and figure out what it actually is that I want to do. And somehow I felt that there was something missing I didn't know, you know, like that orientation phase that people don't really, that are looking for something, but they don't know what it is yet. And so I went to LSE, did a master's there in, um, in history and international relations, and there was some development stuff involved there too. Um, and applied for millions of jobs, had a Saskia Future file that had many tabs, it went into many directions. I had job offers from private equity firms that were investing in renewable energies all the way to some UN jobs and so on. But somehow I wasn't really, I didn't feel like, oh my God, this is what I want to do. Um, <clears throat> and then Eunice came to speak at LSE and I heard him speak and I was like, oh my God, that man is inspiring. Uh, and then a few weeks later, just by absolute chance, a friend of mine uh, told me, oh, I'm going to a conference. Eunice is there. I, I know him. I'll and I was like, oh, you have to introduce me to this man. And so I went there, and uh, I got introduced. And then slowly but surely, um, I, well, I explained to him who I was, and he was like, who are you? And obviously, I didn't really, wasn't really able to make a good case there. But I said, hey, I have some connections to corporates from my former career. Um, and maybe I can also get them, because Danon existed, the Grameen Danon joint venture existed. Maybe I can introduce you to a few more. So, <clears throat> so then we started uh, kind of talking with BASF and with Adidas and with some other, with a German textile company. And so that's how it started. And we created a, <clears throat> a company five years ago called the Grameen Creative Lab, um, <clears throat> which then was supposed to bring in corporates. And also it actually did events to promote the idea because the partner that I did it with was an events guy. Um, and so we started working together, um, and then two years ago, we felt that there was really a need to do more of the implementation work, to actually do more um, work on the ground, and that's why we created Uno Social Business for the Incubator Fund. So that's my story in a nutshell. Um, and, um, and the second question is, of course, a brand like Yunus is extremely helpful. I mean, the guy is one of the seven people in the world that have won the Peace Nobel Prize, the Presidential Gold Medal, and the Presidential Medal of Freedom, and the U.S. Congressional Gold Medal, just as an example. One of seven people in the world, like including Nelson Mandela and a few others. Um, He's also, uh, he also was named by Fortune magazine like, as one of the best entrepreneurs in the world. So he is a super, um, well, exciting brand, obviously, apart from the fact that he's an amazing person and I uh, completely admire him and I'm absolutely lucky that I can work with him. Um, but um, that helps to open the door. That's true. It helps to open the door, but then the rest 
unfortunately doesn't continue like that. You then unfortunately do still have to do the work. <laughs> but yeah, it does help to, to open the door and to use the brand and so on. Um, and it helps to give the whole thing credibility, that's for sure. And that makes our lives obviously easier than it would if we didn't have the brand. And also easier than to talk to Richard Branson if you're talking on behalf of Eunice. So kind of like a virtuous cycle. <laughs> but anyway, I think, um, I guess my time is up, right? I'm looking at Philip. Where is he? No, he's gone. I don't know. Is it up? I don't know. Is it, it looks like it's lunchtime, right? <laughs> I have four more minutes. Okay. If you want one more question, you can have one more question. And then, and then I don't really want to stand between that buffet and, and you. Yes, Michael. How do you manage uh, the monitoring and evaluation? What is your plan for for measuring impact uh, sort of country by country, but also project by project? Yeah. Um, so um, on the um, first of all, we're right now focusing on the project by project, um, just simply for very pragmatic reasons. Um, the project by project is um, we identify key performance indicators that are financial ones, but also social ones. So that's the most important thing. So the financial is just the basics, like very simple things, cash in, cash out, uh, profitability, etc., revenue on a monthly basis and um, social indicators that we identify per business. Um, and so they're different per business, obviously. We use the um, uh, basically the gin iris uh, KPIs. Um, so of the Global Impact Investing Network, they have created this IRIS methodology. I don't know what IRIS actually stands for, but there are different KPIs that you can uh, that you can pick from. We take those. Um, we when we invest in the social business, um, we um, I align on targets with them. We say, okay, uh, you're going to have a thousand school kids this year, two thousand next year, etc. And so each, and, and then um, on a monthly or um, or quarterly basis, it depends on each indicator. We then agree with them how they report and and measure that. So that's on a social business, on a so unit basis of the project. Um, and then obviously the question is, what broader impact does this then actually have in that particular community? And that is, to be honest, not an easy thing to measure because there are so many other influences that might impact the exact same thing that it's extremely uh, difficult to measure. So uh, what we're hoping to do there is to work with universities that help us kind of create a good baseline and that will also really be able to measure the impact. However, that's, it's super, that those kind of measurements are extremely expensive and it's extremely difficult to get all the additional factors out. So this is something that we have to see now how we're going to address it. Right now we're focusing on the per, per uh, social business basis and then consolidating it up per fund and then globally. But the other one is more complicated and very costly. So we'll, we can work with you guys. No problem. Yale is invited. Come to Haiti. We'll do it together. We got a commitment. Um, good. Well, thank you very, very much. I think this, I hope you found it interesting. It was certainly an interesting discussion uh, for me. It was great. There were great questions. So I noticed that the audience is obviously already quite knowledgeable about the context um, and the content. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful uh, that you had me here um, on a Saturday morning. Um, and I hope that we can stay in touch. And maybe some of you 
are social business entrepreneurs or want to be, um, if you're active in any of the seven countries that I mentioned earlier, um, that would be certainly interesting. Unfortunately, today we don't work in other countries, but we might expand there at any point in time. Uh, we even have requests from Sweden right now, so crazy countries like that are now starting to enter our portfolio. Um, and otherwise, um, of course, there are also events that, that we do once in a while. There's the Global Social Business Summit coming up in Kuala Lumpur in November, which might be a bit far because Malaysia is kind of on the other side of the world, but I don't know where you're all from. So that might be something for you guys to join. And otherwise, obviously, our website, Facebook, Twitter, and so on. Feel free to join us. And um, yeah, without further ado, I'll just say thank you very much. And also thank you to Philip for the invitation. Thank you.